Welcome to the Art of Mathematics. I'm Carol Jacoby, and joining us once again is Joseph Benish, Professor of Mathematics at California State University, Long Beach. Joseph, you've been talking about symmetry, and it seems like such a simple concept. We're all pretty familiar with it, but let's dig deeper. What really is symmetry? Good morning, Carol. Uh, that's an excellent question. And in fact, uh, there are mathematicians who have thought deeply about just what you're asking about. What does symmetry mean in a more abstract way? How do we go from the concrete and intuitive, which we're, we're familiar with from our everyday experience, to a mathematical idea that's, that's vast in its scope and has led to really stunning and sublime achievements, not only in mathematics, but in other areas, particularly in physics. One that comes to mind in physics is one of the greatest achievements in physics in history, and that is that of Einstein's special theory of relativity, which led to a new concept of geometry called space-time geometry. So what I want to do, what I hope to do, is impress upon the reader that symmetry can be extended to a general concept which allows us to achieve great new intellectual ideas, both in physics and mathematics. But where we have to start is with the concrete and go from the concrete to the abstract, not in one long step, but in shorter steps that allows us to ascend, if you will, from the, the bottom of the mountain to the top of the mountain, from which we'll get a, a view of the vastness of the landscape and the interconnections of the landscape itself. So one can see that uh, this is an ambitious project, and uh, I hope to convey the basic idea of the mathematical idea of symmetry, starting with the concrete. We are introduced to the notion of symmetry little by little as we encounter the world, starting actually as newborns. Because as newborns, one of our first impressions, once we're able to focus our eyes, is on the face of the mother. And the mother's face is symmetric, as faces are, as bodies are. And they have a certain kind of symmetry called bilateral symmetry. So one of our first impressions in life is immediately the symmetry of the human face. It might be thought that, in fact, that's our first exposure to symmetry, but I dare say that, in fact, we might in some ways think that the sound of the mother's heartbeat in utero, which is certainly something experienced by the fetus, is a, an example of symmetry. Now that sounds very strange that a heartbeat should, should be thought of as something symmetric, what I like to show, in fact, is that it could be conceived as a kind of symmetry. So, in fact, in utero, surprisingly enough, one could think that we're already being exposed to concrete experiences of symmetry. The sound of the mother's heartbeat, the human face. Then as one develops in childhood, one is exposed to symmetry in other forms. So we as humans are exposed to symmetry in concrete form. What mathematicians have done 
is take that childhood experience of symmetry, which is still not very well formed, it's based on experience, and create a mathematical abstract idea which encompasses all those experiences and goes far beyond where one can talk about symmetry in, in ways that we certainly didn't conceive of it in childhood. So it sounds like we're programmed to respond to at least bilateral symmetry. What I'm hearing is there are a lot of other kinds of symmetry, which I guess is what you're going to be talking about. And that's where we're going to end up. Now, that little child gets bigger, goes outside, and uh, experiences, experiences nature. In nature, we behold the beauty of flowers. And flowers, not all flowers, but most flowers, have a different type of symmetry, which one could call rotational symmetry, such as five-fold symmetry and six-fold symmetry. So another example of symmetry is that of flowers, which have rotational symmetry. As a child, we, we eat off plates. Plates are, are circular. Circular plates are, exhibit another kind of symmetry, which is a kind of perfect rotational symmetry. And so what I want to talk about is rotational symmetry, as well as bilateral symmetry. And what one sees is that there are different types of rotational symmetry, such as uh, exhibited in flowers, five-fold symmetry, or six-fold symmetry, or other types of rotational symmetries. But the ideal object that has complete rotational symmetry is that of the circle. I'll, I'll uh, quote a, a famous quatrain from a, a poem by William Blake, uh, which uh, suggests the emotional connection to symmetry. That can, emotional co connection can sometimes be that of beauty. We tend to assign beauty to perfect symmetry, the perfect symmetry of a human face, perfect symmetry of a flower. The closer the, the object, such as the, the face or the flower, attain ideal symmetry, the more beauty we assign to it. The emotional impact of symmetry is suggested by the, that quatrain by Blake, which goes, tiger, tiger burning bright in the forest of the night. What a mortal hand or eye shape thy fearful symmetry. So here symmetry is connected to fear. And Blake's question, one could say, is religious or pre-Darwinian. What a mortal hand or eye. That, that is suggesting an external agent. But we living in the post-Darwinian world, and those of us who are scientifically inclined would ask, what is the evolutionary advantage of symmetry and the mathematical idea of symmetry? Returning though to the circular plate, the circle is the perfect form of rotational symmetry. The uh, ancients were most uh, impressed by that fact that the circle is in some sense perfect. And this was taken up by the ancient astronomer Ptolemy, who developed a theory of orbits, trajectories, which is based on the circle, but it is not the modern theory. However, Ptolemy's theory, I would say, anticipates in some way the modern theory in that he uses symmetry in a very concrete way, that of the circle, as the basis of his uh, explication of orbits. Ptolemy then was successful. After all, his theory lasted for centuries. It's 
not only descriptive, but it's predictive. One could use Ptolemy's theory, for instance, to pre predict uh, eclipses. But in what way does uh, Ptolemy's theory anticipate modern science? Well, for one, the idea of symmetry has entered into physics. I won't uh, explain at this point how that modern physical theories encapsulate the idea of symmetry, but in fact they do. It's a more abstract idea. And the other is that uh, the perfection of the circle, the perfect symmetry of the circle, is connected to a deep theory of mathematical analysis called free analysis. And in fact, the cycles and epicycles of Ptolemy could be considered as uh, a geometric representation of Fourier series. But that's getting ahead of the game a bit. Let's go back to some more concrete stuff. The circle, the square, the rectangle, equilateral triangle, isosceles triangle. All of these are regarded in some sense as symmetric. But let's try to peek underneath the cover and dig a little deeper, if you will, and try to see how a mathemat mathematician understands the symmetry of these various geometric figures. If we look at the square, the square appears to us as symmetric. We have an immediate intuitive feeling that it's symmetric. But here's a way of looking at the square, understand mathematically why we consider the square as symmetric. Not as symmetric as the circle, but symmetric. And that is that if we rotate the square 90 degrees about the center, it comes back to itself. So that rotation by one quarter of a turn takes the square back into itself. If we were to take an object that's completely asymmetric, there's no turn except the trivial turn of not turning at all. There's no turn that would take that, back, take that figure back into itself. So here's that key idea. The key idea is that a symmetric object is one which upon a motion, such as a rotation or a reflection, takes that figure back into itself. The square has other, mo there are other motions which take the square back into itself. One can not only take a quarter turn, one could compound the quarter turn by two quarter turns, that gives a half turn. And if we're talking about a direction, one can talk about going counterclock counterclockwise or clockwise, then uh, one could take uh, a quarter turn either in the one or the other direction. The circle, using this idea of transformations, that is motions, transformations, is more symmetric in the sense that no matter what turn one takes around the center, the circle comes back to itself. The turns are arbitrary, arbitrary angle. Consequently, from that point of view, we can assert that the circle is more symmetric than the square because of this, this notion of transformations. Now let's go from the square to the rectangle. If we, if we stay with the square, we could enumerate all the various transformations, all the various motions that take the square into itself. This would be four turns. And these turns can be what mathematicians say are composed. They can be put together. You could, you could take a quarter turn and follow it by a half turn, and that gives a three quarters turn. This way of operating on transformations or following one transformation by another 
leads to another concept in mathematics called a group. A group is simply, in this case, it's a set of transformations or motions which can be combined to lead to another transformation. So a quarter turn and a half turn leads to a three quarters turn, which is also a transformation that takes the square back into itself. So here's the central idea of the mathematical idea of symmetry. We can talk about transformations, transformations that take an object or a figure back into itself. And those transformations could be thought of as having a structure. And that structure is following one transformation by another, which is, goes by the name of composition, composition of transformations. Altogether, one can talk about the group of transformations of a square. So the group of transformations of a square, if we're just restricting to rotations, consists of four transformations, a quarter turn, half turn, three quarters per turn, and a full turn. If one wants to include reflections, then one could reflect about both diagonals. One could also reflect through the line going through the midpoints of opposite sides. That leads to two more reflections. Altogether, there are four reflections. Four reflections and four rotations lead to eight motions, eight transformations. I'm using motion and transformation here synonymously. And one could say that the group of, or the symmetry group, the symmetry group of the square consists of eight transformations. The fact that it has eight transformations suggests that the square is, in some sense, highly symmetric. And it's more symmetric than a rectangle. I think intuitively it's clear that a square is more symmetric than a rectangle. But using this notion of a group of transformations, one could see it more clearly. In particular, if we take a rectangle, a quarter turn does not take the rectangle back into itself, only a half turn. So clearly, there, there are less transformations that take a rectangle back into itself. The word for taking it back into itself is leaving the rectangle invariant. So the transformations that leave the rectangle invariant are fewer than the, those that leave the square invariant. Put it another way, the symmetry group of the rectangle is smaller than the symmetry group of the square. And now we have a mathematical concept, the group of transformations, which can take our intuitive, concrete thought or impression that the square is more symmetric than the rectangle. And this explicates that intuitive notion. How? By comparing the groups of transformation and saying that the group of transformations of the square is richer, larger than the group of transformations of the rectangle. So what was done here for the square and the rectangle could be done for equilateral triangles, could be done for an isosceles triangle. Now one can see that an isosceles triangle has bilateral symmetry, but uh, does not have rotational symmetry. Whereas the regular triangle, that is the equilateral triangle, has rotational symmetry. Simply one third of a turn takes the triangle back into itself. So there in a nutshell is the abstract mathematical idea of symmetry. Now, if we go back to the beating of, of the, the mother's heart in the womb, what kind of symmetry would that be? 
Well, I think it becomes clearer if we represent that phenomenon, the heartbeat, uh, spatially. One could graph it, say every second there's a repetition of the heartbeat. What that means is that that graph, which is a spatial representation of the heartbeat, has a kind of symmetry that is called translational symmetry. If one moves the graph over by one unit, it takes the graph into itself. Just as a rotation by 90 degrees takes the square into itself, similarly, the translation, a moving of the graph over by one unit, takes the graph into itself. That gives a, a spatial representation that's more easy to comprehend as being symmetric than the temporal one that is directly experienced. There are a lot more types of symmetry than I imagined. There are, Carol. Here we, we could go from two-dimensional symmetry in the plane to three-dimensional symmetry, that is, in space. Before we go to three-dimensional symmetry, though, let's talk a bit about the connection between the, the symmetric groups and the symmetric objects. So just as the square leads to a group consisting of four rotations and four reflections, one could associate a group to the a regular triangle, but one could go the other way around. Let's go back to the circle, the one that's perfectly symmetric. And one could look at the group of rotations of the square as being special, one could say, in mathematical language, a subgroup of the group of rotations of the circle. The group of rotations of the circle is every rotation, whereas the group of rotations of the square are just the ones that were mentioned, consisting of four. And th that leads to the mathematical question, what are all the subgroups of the group of rotations of the circle? And what they are are exactly the rotations, the groups of rotations that arise from each regular polygon. Every regular polygon is associated to a symmetric group. We talked about the square and the equilateral triangle, but certainly the regular hexagon will consist of uh, a group of six rotations. And so what one sees here is a correspondence between all the symmetries of the circle and specializing that to groups of transformations, each one corresponding to a regular polygon. The two-dimensional symmetry is, is interesting. But three-dimensional symmetry is, I would say, richer, is more interesting. And I, what I want to do later in another talk is connect what are called the platonic solids, the regular polyhedra in three dimensions, with symmetry groups. And that should be very interesting. Great. I look forward to that. Yes, we're going to have you back and talk about three-dimensional symmetries. This is, even in the two dimensions, this has been a very rich area of exploration. So thank you so yeah. much for joining us, Joseph. And I look forward to talking to you again. All right, Carol. Thank you so much. Thank you. We'd love to hear from you. If you have something you'd like to share on the air or a suggestion for a guest for a future show, leave a voice message at anchor.fm slash the art of mathematics with hyphens or email me at cjacoby at jacobyconsulting.com. See you next month. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.